0: And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So doggone glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. I am back. I am back from vacation. I'm back from visiting my mom. I'm back from the East Coast. I'm back from visiting my brother. I'm back from visiting my goddaughter. I am back, rip, roaring, and ready to go. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Konichiwa, shalom, wassalamu alaikum, namaste, Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Que mi amigos, me amo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, so doggone glad that you could be with us. Man, I hope everybody's doing great, fantastic, wonderful, I hope that you're doing everything that needs to be done. To go ahead and make your world, to make your space, to make your place, to make your children, to make your spouse, to make your friends, to make your cousins uh, much better. Move in this world in a positive direction through unity, through love, through understanding, through education, through acknowledgement, through listening and learning from others who don't look like you. Different genders, faces, races, places, political affiliations. Let's see what we can do for our next generation and the generation after that to move this pathetic society in a positive direction, a lot better than it is currently right now. Hopefully, the period of time that I am recording this podcast, I can go ahead and make your life, make your time a little bit better than it was before because you know what five seconds just passed we're never going to get that back damn five more seconds until death let's see what we can do to uh get it done to uh make sure that we uh you know have a good time doing what we're doing Wendell's World and Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us on the program today man a lot of good stuff man you know we got to talk about this NBA playoff the second round Now, especially in the Western Conference, there's a lot of fresh new faces. Eastern Conference, fresh new faces happening in the second round. For the first time, I think, since 2011, there's going to be no Steph Curry. There's going to be no LeBron James. There's going to be no Miami Heat. There's going to be no Los Angeles Lakers. going to be no Golden State Warriors who can claim that they're in the NBA Finals or that they're going to be winning an NBA championship. So it's either going to be Utah, Phoenix, the Clippers, Philadelphia, the bucks the nets interesting stuff happening man and so i'm um, going to break down all of that stuff i, I wish you know the way that these uh, games are panning out is there any way humanly possible that the nba can flip-flop in terms of switcheroo the games being telecast out here on the west coast it's no big deal because you know at 4 4 4 o'clock 4 30 we get the eastern conference games and then 7 30 6 30 7 o'clock we get the Western Conference game. So for me, it's no big deal because I am done watching the NBA by 10.30 at the latest 11 o'clock at night, depending upon how the game goes and whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I can go ahead and uh, get me some sleep. Heading back east, man, when I went ahead and watched the final game of the Lakers and the Phoenix Suns, and that game was on, started at 10 o'clock, man, by like the third quarter, I was dragging, I was suffering, I was uh, putting in the work and putting in the effort to watch that game. So it's kind of like, man, for those who are on the East Coast, number one, be happy, be grateful, be thankful. But number two, man, if you're an NBA fan and you got a nine to five or even a seven to three or something like that to where you have to wake up in the morning, get your kids ready for school, get your wife up, do all those type of things, go to work, it's impossible, virtually impossible. For you to get a decent night's sleep if you want to go ahead and watch the Western Conference games on TNT, on ESPN, whenever those games are being televised or whatever network that game is being televised. So, yeah, man, I've been away from the East Coast for so long, I kind of forgot how I used to uh, struggle, even in my younger days, to go ahead and A, watch the entire game, then B, wake up for work or school or classes the next day and get that done. So that was sort of a wake-up call to be like, "Woo, yeah, man, I I can see how this is is tough. Sometimes I can even go ahead, living out here on the West Coast with the TNT game and even the ESPN game, I can go ahead and kind of skip a little bit of the first game, the Eastern Conference game, knowing that they're going to show the replay on TNT at 11 o'clock my time. So if I'm going to be going to bed around midnight, 12.30, something like that, I can go ahead and watch the first quarter again, make a few more notes, make a few more observations, bring up some new things that I want to talk about, but take a gander at the game again. And again, if I want to do something and come back at five thirty, five 5 o'clock to catch the second quarter, no big deal. I'll just watch the replay of the game in the of the first quarter when they do the replay on TNT. Living in the West Coast, you can do that because, again, 10.30, 11 o'clock, depending upon what time the late game the west coast games ends i can go ahead and do that for the east coast it would be sitting there at 2 a.m in the morning trying to watch a replay of the game when you have to wake up at 6 or 7 to go to work can understand where you're like nah it's okay i'll pass but uh yeah so far been enjoying these playoffs the first round pretty entertaining pretty nice pretty good um the second round continuing some good games. The Western Conference games have been intense. Some of the Eastern Conference, well, mainly the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks have been a disappointment. I'll get into that. Philadelphia and Atlanta, they're an interesting series. The Clippers and the Utah Jazz balled out. was an intense competitive game the other night. First half of the Utah, the Utah Jazz looked like they wanted to, um, they wanted to imitate the Houston Rockets of a couple of years ago by shooting nothing but threes, but they finally got their act together. Donovan Mitchell came up with 45 points. I'll get into that later on in the uh, podcast, but that was a good game. That was an exciting game. This is going to be an interesting series moving forward, and then you have the Phoenix Suns and the Denver Nuggets who are going to be playing their game number two tonight. I'm recording this this afternoon, so i want to get this done before the Clippers and the, excuse me, before the... Suns and the Suns and the uh, Denver Nuggets start. So, that's going to be an interesting game. Let's see if Denver can rebound from their loss in in game one to the Phoenix Suns. So, a lot of good things, man. A lot of good things. You know, mentioned before, the Hawks and the Sixers tied one game apiece. Atlanta won the first game. Start the series 128-124. Saw some of that while waiting for a flight at BWI, Baltimore Washington International Airport. But Atlanta started off strong, held on. Trey Young scored 25 of the 35 points in the first half, had 10 assists for the game. Bogdan Bogdanovich, who missed all three games of the season series when playing the 76ers with an injury. He had 21 points. John Collins scored 21 points on 7-9 shooting from the floor, 3-4 from three-point range. As I mentioned before, the Hawks led by as many as 26 points in 20. By halftime and staged and survived a furious rally by the 76ers as Joel Embiid led Philly in scoring with 39 points, 9 rebounds. Steph Curry had 21 points. Tobias Harris, I'm going to talk about him a little bit later on my podcast also, had 20. So... Not much defense played in game one. (laughs) Atlanta shot 51% from the field. Philadelphia shot 55%. So, I mean, it was a situation where, hey, look, you know, both teams strong. I think Atlanta had a stronger, was more mentally ready, was more mentally prepared to play because of the opponent that they played in the first round, going up against the New York Knicks, that tremendous atmosphere and going up against that team. You know, opposed to the Philadelphia 76ers who basically had a walk in the park knowing that they were going to beat my Washington Wizards. So I think game one for the series between Atlanta and Philadelphia was something where Philadelphia had to get acclimated themselves and acclimate themselves to saying okay, we're not playing the Wizards anymore. We're actually playing a team that could actually beat us. And I think there was some respect gained from that outing, from game one by the 76ers on the Hawks to let them know that you know what the Hawks are for real and we need to take them seriously in game two they did just that Philadelphia won going a one going away 118 102 Joel Embiid who as you might know if you don't know let me tell you playing with a small lateral meniscus tear in his right knee dominated playoff high 40 points 13 rebounds Tobias Harris added 22 six rebounds four assists Steph Curry again three point shooting stretching the floor had 21 points Shake shake, shake Shaker Milton had a major impact near the end of the third period. Entered the game with 2.46 left to go in the third quarter. Um, I think that was the time when Atlanta took the first lead of the game, in fact. Philadelphia came out with a haymaker, had them down early, early in the uh, game, but Atlanta resisted or Atlanta survived the onslaught, the early onslaught by Philadelphia, worked their way back into the game late in the third quarter, took a lead, and then Shaker Milton came in And uh, basically saved the game for him. Made a three-pointer to give Philadelphia the lead at 82-80, a lead which they never lost. And then hit a running, improbable, buzzer-beating, end-of-the-quarter shot to uh, increase the lead for Philadelphia. And from there, hey, it was all good. Finished with 14 points in 14 minutes. So Atlanta, hey, Trey Young, led the Hawks, 21 points, 11 rebounds, much better defense by Philadelphia in this game on Young, limiting his floaters, limiting the impact that he had when he penetrated the middle. Young, not efficient from the outside. So, so Matisse Thybul, Ben Simmons, did an awesome job to help defense, even with a couple of block shots by Joel Embiid when Young came into the paint, controlled the paint. So, you know, it was a good win, a must win for the Philadelphia 76ers. And so many... So many areas, which I'll talk about. Off the bench for Atlanta, Danilo Gallinari scored 21 points. Kevin Herter had 20. But um, when you turn the ball over 17 times and Philadelphia turns it into 28 points, you are going to lose. So, what I'm going to be talking about concerning this series and my next segment when I'm talking about the NBA playoffs is... Can the Philadelphia 76ers win the championship the way they're playing? In regards to, look, if Joel Embiid is not going to be dominant Joel Embiid, the way the Brooklyn Nets are playing, I don't think that they're going to win the series. I don't think they're going to beat the Brooklyn Nets. The way that Atlanta is playing, going back now tied 1-1, essentially having the home court advantage going back to Atlanta. If Joel Embiid is dominant, we could be looking at a situation in a couple of days where Philadelphia is going back to try to survive down three to one. So the way that the 76ers are built right now, is this a championship contender? If the Brooklyn Nets are going to play like they did in game two, the answer is Joel Embiid's going to have to be Shaquille O'Neal, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, George Mikan, Artis Gilmore, Bob Lanier, and then the other big man who I haven't mentioned, uh, times 15. The, beat, the Brooklyn that's the way they played game two. Discuss them a little bit later in my podcast. But you have Joel Embiid, who has a history of A, not being consistent in the amount of games that he played, and B, being consistent in his being injury-prone are we going to put all of our eggs in one basket in terms of Joel Embiid leading the 76ers, hoping, praying that he can stay healthy enough to be dominant for the Philadelphia 76ers to win their first NBA championship since fo Fo Fo, Moses Malone, Dr. J, Bobby Jones, Mo Cheeks, Andrew Toney of 1982-83? Are we going to put that on the shoulders of Joel Embiid? We're going to have to because if not, I don't see Ben Simmons carrying us. I don't see Steph Curry carrying us. I don't see Danny Green carrying you guys. I don't see uh, anybody else. I don't see what schemes or what coaching situations or coaching adjustments that Doc Rivers can make to offset a hampered, a downgraded, a missing in action, Joel Embiid, if they can get past the Atlanta Hawks and then move on to the... Eastern Conference Finals where presumably they're going to be playing the Brooklyn Nets and then on to the NBA Finals where presumably they're going to be playing either the Utah Jazz or the Phoenix Suns. So all of those things we'll be discussing in my next segment. The series that could win the decades. Remember that this, this is the Wendell's World of Sports, um, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us throwing that in. The next series, the next semi-finals, the series in that Eastern Conference, the the Brooklyn Nets versus the Milwaukee Bucks. And what could be the winner wins the championship. Remember that was a storyline, one of the storylines heading into this series, a doggone drag out, bare knuckle, fisticuffs type of a battle between these two teams. Well, yeah, it looks like when you have the storyline the winner of this series could win the NBA championship, should win the NBA championship, is going to be favorite to win the NBA championship. That is correct. The only problem is there's a little swerve to that because we thought that this would be something where it could be either the Brooklyn Nets or the Milwaukee Bucks. After two games, and yes, I know it was on the home court of the Brooklyn Nets. I understand that. But after two games, it looks like, yeah. The winner of the NBA championship is going to be coming out of the series and clearly is going to be the Brooklyn Nets. What is going on with the Milwaukee Bucks? Nets lead the series 2-0 after two impressive home court victories. Brooklyn looked unstoppable, unbeatable on another level in game two with a 125-86 thumping, romping, embarrassment, destruction of the Milwaukee Bucks. Kevin Durant had 32 points. Four rebounds, six assists, 12 of 18 from the field. Kyrie Irving, meanwhile, put up 22 points, five rebounds, six assists. Did I mention they didn't need James Harden? James Harden didn't play. (laughs) The Nets shot 50% from the three-point line on 42 three-point attempts and shot 52% overall. And the Nets, who were malign, who were destroyed, who were carved up, who were... Who were verbally destroyed by pundits, by folks on the talking head shows, by NBAers all over talking about how bad their defense was, how putrid their defense was, how lackadaisical their defense was, how non caring their defense was early in the season. Remember that. Remember all that. Well, the uh, the Nets held Milwaukee, the NBA's highest scoring team this season. 34 points below his season, season average in game two. And then during that game, the Nets by, led by as many as 49 points. <sighs> did I mention that Brooklyn dominated this game without James Harden? Did, did, I, did I throw that in there because about one minute into game one, Harden sprained his hamstring? Hey, look, man, I'll, I'll tell you this right now. If Brooklyn's going to play like this, if Brooklyn's going to play at that, that high level, with or without James Harden, they're going to win the championship. Mail in the stats. I mean, this is just going to be a situation where for contract obligations, the NBA season has to continue. But if the league gets the memo from the Brooklyn that hey, guess what? We're going to play at this level for the rest of the playoffs. Forget it. Who's coming in second? Utah? Phoenix? Clippers, who's coming in second? Denver, who's coming in second here? Because they y'all ain't winning the NBA championship. I'm telling you that right now. Brooklyn has just elevated themselves to what Golden State was a few years ago when it was a foregone conclusion that unless something tragic happens in terms of a major injury, that Golden State was going to win the championship. The Brooklyn Nets, the way they played, elevated their stature to that similar of the 2001 LA Lakers when they came into the finals against the Philadelphia 76ers with Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. I'll get back to that team when I talk about this series in the next segment. But so if the Brooklyn Nets are going to play like this, the intrigue, the suspense is gone. This is a situation where yes, the Brooklyn Nets will be winning the NBA championship. The question is moving forward. Was this a product of, you know, one shining moment, the Nets played out of their asses, thanks to a lackadaisical, comical, embarrassing performance by the Milwaukee Bucks. So what I'm saying is, is that was this, was this one of these where it was like, hey, man, you know, that's about the best we could play we were in the zone, blah, blah, blah. We're, we're not going to go to Milwaukee. with Milwaukee down 2 nothing, The way they got their asses whooped the other night. And be able to shoot 52% for the field. Giannis is not going to let KD embarrass him again. On a consistent basis like he did in game two. Irving is not going to shake and bake and get down and shake his rum shaker. And go past everybody with the verb and the skill and the excitement. And the ooh, ah, that he displayed in game two and game one. They're going to go to Milwaukee. Milwaukee's going to be angry. Milwaukee is going to be upset. Milwaukee is going to be embarrassed and Milwaukee is going to say, fuck it. <laughs> I mean, hopefully they will play much harder. I don't know what that entails. I don't know if it means my boot older getting on his hands and knees and bringing in his family members and saying, fellas, you realize that I need this job. And if we continue to play like this and we lose in four or five games, I'm out of a job. Take a look at my beautiful wife here. She needs to keep herself looking beautiful. She needs those pedicures. She needs those manicures. Bring in my beautiful dollar, will you? This young lady's going to be going to college. I need to be paying for her college, fellas. And when she gets married, who do you think is going to be paying for the wedding? Thank you very much. This is all on the line, man. My paycheck, my way of living is all on the line. Do you know that beautiful house I have on the suburbs of Milwaukee, outside of Milwaukee? the beautiful cars I drive, the lifestyle that I have. I want to keep that up, fellas. Please, for God fucking sakes, save me. Save my job. He's got to do something. Because right now, Steve Nash is making him look silly from the coach versus coach in terms of that uh, dynamic is concerned, the coaching performance. Steve Nash is uh, running circles around him. And um, the Bucks look lost. The Bucs look out of shape. The Bucks look ha- looks like they have no confidence whatsoever. And when the Brooklyn Nets were whooping their ass, Milwaukee just said, fuck it. We'll just sit here and take it. No problem. Nope. They just got their asses whooped. Brooklyn is beating the shit out of us. They're laughing at us. And we're not going to do anything. We're not going to uh, hit back. We're not going to fight back. We're just going to sit there and take it. And then after the fight, beaten, bloodied, and bruised, we're just going to have long looks on our face Faces. I, I, I can't imagine a team with Chris Middleton, Giannis Adenakupo, Jeru Holiday, PJ Tucker, Brook Lopez. I, I can't I can't imagine those guys acquiescing and giving up like they did, but they did. So, you know, just for pride's sake, I mean, Giannis is a two time MVP. I expect him to come out guns a blazing. I, I expect Chris Middleton the future performances that he had in the first two games. I expect him to come out and play much harder. I expect Drew Holiday not to lose his confidence, not to lose his belief and come out and play harder. I'm expecting something from Bobby Portis. I'm expecting something from the bench. I'm expecting the Bucks to stop shooting contested off the dribble three-point shots and, I don't know, maybe work their way into the paint, maybe get Brooke Lopez on the block and try to at least physically make Kevin Durant work a little bit harder. I mean, shit. If he's just going to go ahead and embarrass the entire squad on offense, you might as well try to make him work on defense, right? Just a little bit. I'm not asking for Brooke Lopez to post up Kevin Durant and go, and go Hakeem Olajuwon versus David Robinson in the '96 Western Conference Finals on his ass, but damn, at least make him work a little bit. So we'll see. Move forward, and of course, we'll be discussing that in the segments. Proceeding this one here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, Monsieur, Mademoiselle. Western Conference second round. Some good stuff going on. As I mentioned before, the Utah Jazz beat the L.A. Clippers. Great, competitive, intense game. One twelve, one o nine. Jazz overcame terrible shooting in this first half to outscore L.A. sixty five forty nine in the second half. Thirty two nineteen in the third quarter. It was a matter of Man, the Jazz were getting good looks. But in the first half, as far as the three-pointers were concerned, but they were just breaking them. And Donovan Mitchell, who, as I mentioned before, before, scored 45 points, he said in the interview afterwards that he was thoroughly embarrassed and thoroughly outplayed in the first half, both offensively and defensively. So he came into the locker room, and he said, Man, fellas, my bad. I got you. I'm going to turn it up. And he most definitely did. First half. The Jazz missed 21 consecutive shots, mostly three-point attempts. As I mentioned before, they were imitating the Houston Rockets versus the Golden State Warriors a few years ago in Game Seven, where what Houston missed what, what 27 straight three-point shots or some nonsense like that. Well, I mean it was just a clang clang fest in the first half for Utah, but the looks that they were getting, you knew eventually that they could um they could. Uh, you know, make up for those missed shots in the first half, and as I mentioned before, Donovan Mitchell scored on the first four possessions to start the second half. Start to come back from being down 13 at the half, and he said, "Screw this! I'm going to go super mode. I'm going to go uh, superstar. I'm going to go franchise player on the Los Angeles Clippers." And wish that uh, and wish that Kawhi Leonard would have recruited me and not Paul George to the Los Angeles Clippers. Mitchell was 13 for 16 for 30 from the field. 6-15 from the three-point line, as I mentioned before, after a horrendous start for the first half in that game, one for Utah. So Mitchell playing like a franchise player. Mitchell playing like an elite basketball player. Mitchell playing like a franchise player who can lead his team to an NBA championship. The Clippers played hard, but they ran out of gas. Plain and simple. The team shot 38% in the second half. Kawhi Leonard, 23 points. Paul George was 4-17 for 17 from the field. Marcus Morris, Leonard, playoff P, <laughs> combined to shoot 17-50 of 50 from the field. So, after that emotional seven-game series against the Dallas Mavericks, that was strange, that was interesting, wasn't it? The uh, Clippers came in, played well, took advantage of Utah not playing any defense. Again, when you take a look at the series before for both those teams when they met, the Jazz had a relatively easy time against the Memphis Grizzlies coming in their first game against a Clipper team that had to win two games in a row to avoid being eliminated and all hell being broken broken out over at uh, Steve Ballmerland. So it took a little time for the Jazz to match that intensity that the Clippers carried over from their last series in the first round. But they caught them and they passed them. Doesn't mean that the Jazz are going to win this series. I think this is going to be a very very competitive series. And despite the fact that, yes, you can start going ahead and making your playoff p jokes, I think that Paul George is going to have a much better performance second round this year than he had last year. Of course, he can't get any worse, but um, I think the way Kawhi Leonard played in the first round, especially in the deciding games, games uh, six and seven against the Dallas Mavericks, I, I don't know if yeah, Kawhi can play at that level again. I mean, it's tough to basically carry that offense, then go ahead and for stretches, guard Luka Doncic, who turned out to be, as of right now, what, maybe top three, top four, in terms of the best players on the planet right now, at the age of 21, 22. Woo, loaded! So Kawhi went over and um, put the pressure on Doncic, and, and shut him down. I shouldn't say top three or four because he did kind of flame out in the fourth quarter. But I will say Luca's performance, let's put him top six or seven because for that series, Dallas versus the Clippers, I will say that Kawhi Leonard had a better series than Lucas. So, okay, sorry about that. Just kind of like wanted to go ahead and get woo doggy into one of my uh, rambling thoughts. But um, yeah, so Kawhi, don't think in this series he can continue the level of offense and then go ahead and try to shut down Donovan Mitchell like he did in games mainly six and seven, get the Dallas Mavericks where he put his offense, put the offense on the back for LA and then uh, made it very difficult for Luka Dantich in that series. So we're going to need something from playoff P. And again, man, let's kind of like stop with the soft switches when the... Jazz are on offense. If we could do that, please. And the fact that playoff P, Paul George couldn't take advantage of the switch, which had Rudy Gobert trying to guard Paul George 21, 22 feet away from the basket. George could neither rise up for a good look on a jump shot, and he could not get to the rim and finish or get fouled against Gobert. So in that, at least in game one, big man wins. So we'll see what happens. And I'll be discussing also with Donovan Mitchell ready to become the best player on a team that can win the NBA championship. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Phoenix Suns and the Denver Nuggets game that's going to be happening in about four hours or so. What is it, 6.30? What time did that game start? 6.30, somewhere around there? So I got like, what, three hours to uh, go. Ahead. I'll probably have to uh, go ahead and cut, slice, and publish tomorrow. But, um, yeah, they're going to be starting in a couple of hours or so. Phoenix won game one, 122-105. Dallas scoring from the Suns, shooting 54% from the field for the game. Four of the five starters for Phoenix scored 20 points or more. That would be Chris Paul, Mikhail Bridges, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton. Jay Crowder also scored 14 points. The starting five combined to shoot 39 of 64 from the floor. That would be a robust 60%. You ain't winning basketball games, playoff basketball games, if you're the Denver Nuggets on the road, allowing that type of shooting percentage. Unless you have, unless unless James Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving are going to uh, show up in a Denver Nuggets uniform and say, we got this. Yeah, having those type of offensive numbers for your opponent is not the recipe for success if uh, you're a team in the NBA. So, we will go ahead and uh, take a look at that breakdown with that. Chris Paul steady. Um, DeAndre Ayton continues to play well. Stalled, I guess you could say. Uh, a draw slightly better than uh, uh, Nikola Jokic, the deserving MVP in Game One. So we'll we'll see what happens moving forward tonight in Game Two. Wendell's World and Sports the Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I mean, if we're talking about sports, right? If we're talking about sports in the racist, ignorant, divided states of America, then we have to, of course, talk about NFL. We have to, even though it's June, there's been many camps and all this other bullshit. We have to go ahead and we have to talk about the NFL because God forbid we don't talk about it. On Sunday, this past Sunday, the Atlanta Falcons agreed to trade Julio Jones to the Tennessee Titans. Atlanta agreed to send... Jones in a 2023 sixth round draft pick to send it to Tennessee for a 2022 second round pick and a 2023 third rounder. Jones has been the subject of trade conversation over the past two months. Went on the Shannon and Skip show on May 24th in a telephone interview with, with uh, Shannon. Not with Skip, but Shannon. I just like saying the word Skip. And on the network show, was like when they asked, hey, man, are you uh, done? He was like, yeah, I'm out of here. When he was asked about the Falcons. So don't know if Jones knew that the phone call was being televised. But, hey, you know what? It uh, doesn't matter anyway. He's now with the Tennessee Titans. Last year for Julio, 51 catches, 771 yards, three touchdowns, averaged 86 yards per game receiving, which was his worst figure since 2012. And he also missed seven games last year with hamstring injuries. But when you take a look at it, I, I thought, and I mentioned this before on my last podcast or the podcast before, I don't know, man, when you get old and see how all this shit happens. But I remember talking about this on my last podcast concerning Julio Jones about where it would be a fit or a what team should want him. And I listed off all the teams that could use someone like a Julio Jones. I think I mentioned the... Baltimore Ravens and the Green Bay Packers and the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Las Vegas Raiders and all these teams. And I broke it down to, you know, what team would value the most in getting Julio really didn't think too much about the Tennessee Titans. But when you look at it for Tennessee wide receiver is a need when you're talking about losing their uh, top two or two of their three Uh, top pass receivers to free agency when Corey Davis signed with the New York Jets and then Janu Smith signed with the New England Patriots. So another wide receiver, another pass-catching guy was in need, was in play. So Jones is now going to play with the number one receiver, A.J. Brown, Derrick Henry at the running back, who's ran for 2,000 yards, a run-based type of offense, which solved the defense put eight in a box an exorbitant amount of times, the most in the NFL. So we're going to be taking a look at Julio being matched up a lot of one-on-one coverages where he can go ahead and get some things done. Ryan Tannehill as the quarterback continues to be a quarterback who was uh, of the wouldn't say upper echelon, but somewhere anywhere around number nine to number 15, 16 in the NFL It would be the first time. I mean, this is a situation where, you know, A.J. Brown is the guy who models, who emulated his game after Julio Jones. And these guys are two big, strong receivers that can go ahead and make plays. We saw the prowess that A.J. Brown had at the wide receiver position. So it'll be interesting. He had a second consecutive 1,000-yard season. Um, So let's see how well... Let's see how well that Julio Jones can play off of that. So you have that. Derrick Henry rushing for over 2,000 yards. So I think it's a pretty good idea. The only thing that I'm thinking about is at 32 years old and the guy who, as I mentioned before, was dealing with injury problems last uh, season, how much is Julio Jones going to be able to give you in a 17-game season? And will this be able to overcome a subpar defense for the Titans to become elite, what are we looking for? What are the expectations when we think about Julio Jones going to the Tennessee Titans? We're not talking about 2014 Julio Jones. We're not talking about 2016 Julio Jones. We're talking about a 32-year-old receiver in Julio Jones who's going to be at the number two at the number two receiver to be that guy to take some of the pressure off of AJ Brown and in losing Smith, their tight end who's gonna fill that role, which in turn will take pressure off of not just AJ Brown, but also someone like Julio Jones also. So what are they going to be the expectations the Julio Jones of twenty seventeen is not walking through that door. Don't expect the don't expect the productivity and the prowess of that of that receiver, but still I think Jones can have multiple multiple games where he can be the best wide receiver on the field for that day. Doesn't mean he's going to be doing it every single time. Doesn't mean that for 17 weeks, we expect Julio Jones to be that guy for 11, 12, 13 of them. But if he gives you four or five games where he's the best receiver on the field, if he gives you six or seven games, if he's going to be catching seven passes for 98 yards in the TD from the number two receiver position, I think the Tennessee Titans will go with that, especially if that happens. You're going to start. You're going to start to see more running lanes and more opportunities for Derrick Henry to have big, big games in the run department. So there we go. As I mentioned before, doesn't make them a Super Bowl contender. They're still not uh, on the same level going into this season, at least on paper. They're not on the same level as the Kansas City used to be champions, the Buffalo Bills the Baltimore Ravens, the Cleveland Browns. They're not at that level, but it doesn't hurt when your biggest free agency pickup for defense is Bud Dupree, where the Steelers said, see you later. Bye-bye. Have a good one. And he's also coming off an ACL tear, and that's going to be your claim to fame as far as the defense for Tennessee, the free agent acquisition that's going to elevate that defense. You're counting on is Bud Dupree. Bud then, nah, man, I don't think that's going to be working for the Titans, at least in terms of defense, to try to stop a Patrick Mahomes, to try to stop a Josh Allen, to try to stop a Baker Mayfield, try to stop a Lamar Jackson. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Okay! It must be time for talking about Aaron Rodgers. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show where we talk about Aaron Rodgers sensibly, no matter what he does. If he's on vacation, we're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers. If he's on a Hawaiian vacation trip with his beautiful bride, his beautiful fiance, we're going to talk about it. If we're going to have anything in terms of Aaron Rodgers' concern, we're going to talk about it here on Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host of this wonderful game where we talk and we speculate and we opinionate and we give our thoughts and opinions about what is going on with Aaron Rodgers even if there is nothing going on with Aaron Rodgers and it's June in the NFL. (sighs) Aaron Rodgers is officially holding out. Yeah I know the season starts in September but here we are in June. We have to go ahead and make a big deal out of that. Aaron Rodgers is officially holding out. The Packers began their Full squad minicamp Tuesday without Aaron Rodgers. Woo! It was the first time in Rodgers' 16-year NFL career that he is a holdout. Woo! <laughs> he's now skipped the entire. Speaking of Aaron Rodgers, he's now skipped the entire uh, Packers offseason program. I mean, you know, the guy ain't coming in, man. He is not coming in. He didn't show up for all three phases of the franchise voluntary workout sessions for the first time in his career. So. We're taking a look now at when are we going to be able to hit the panic button? When are we going to be able to lead off this with SportsCenter? When are we going to be able to talk about this on the uh, Shannon and Skip and the Mike Greenberg TV show and uh, everything else? The next mandatory reporting date for Rodgers is July 27th, which is the opening of the team's training camp. So if we're going hog wild over Aaron Rodgers becoming uh, becoming, um, a holdout, because he missed a you know, some man some some mini squad camp, some mini camp or some nonsense like that. What do you think the excitement is going to be when he doesn't show up for uh, training camp? Especially now when the NBA season is gonna be over, Major League Baseball is gonna be in the dog days, the Summer Olympics haven't started yet. What do you think? My goodness gracious, man, it's gonna be like World War Three. I mean, it's gonna be like Roberto Clemente dies in a plane crash. Thurman Munson dies in a plane crash. Len Bias dies of a cocaine overdose. John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas. And Aaron Rodgers didn't show up for Packers minicamp. Now the Packers have the option to fine Rodgers $93,000 $93, for missing this week's mandatory camp. And by missing all of the offseason programs, Rodgers won't receive his $500,000 $500, dollar off-season workout bonus. Heaven saves a life. How in the world is he going to pay for his marriage? How in the world did he pay for that trip to um, Hawaii if he's not going to receive his $500,000 off-season bonus? Isn't it nice to sit there and talk about, yeah, you know what, 500 grand? Eh, no need. They're going to find me $93,000. <sighs> yeah, sorry. Must be nice, but good for him. Um, i From the Packers, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to find this guy. What are you flipping nuts? I'm begging and pleading a guy who doesn't want to be part of our team, begging and pleading for him to acquiesce and change his mind. And oh, by the way, while you're thinking about that, I'm going to find you $93,000. Also, when the majority of players who've gone on record say, Aaron, do what you have to do. When you have the team and Devontae Adams having the back of Aaron Rodgers in terms of what he's doing, you really think it would be wise for the Packers' organizations to turn around and find him $93,000, find him $93, find him 93 cents. Of course it's ridiculous. In fact, I'll tell you what, man, if, uh, Aaron Rodgers, we can get to some type of uh, agreement or we can get back to some level of he's coming back and everything is copacetic, you know, with uh, going on for this season. I'll even give you your $500,000 bonus for not working out. So it's a situation where, yeah, we'll kiss your ass because guess what? Our only other option is putting in Jordan Love or maybe trading for, uh, for, uh, a, for, a. uh, I don't know who's out there. Who's out there? Who's that kid for at Jacksonville? Uh, Minchie or some nonsense like that. You know, that. That's our that's our backup plan. Or we can just start Jordan Love. At least while people are sitting there whining and moaning and complaining and kerfuffling about, oh, my goodness, what's going on with Aaron Rodgers, at least it gives the Packers organization more time and opportunity to see what they have in Jordan Love. Because if Green Bay eventually trades Rodgers – I mentioned before, what's your plan B? Are you going to trade? If you go ahead, and, for instance, and trade Aaron Rodgers to Denver, and in the trade package, the Broncos get uh, the Broncos send over uh, send over Drew Locke, the quarterback, the starting quarterback for them last season. If Denver, as part of the deal to get Aaron Rodgers, uh, trades Drew Locke to the Packers, what does that say for Jordan Love? So it's like, wait a minute. So all of this stuff couldn't be avoided. So wait, you moved up ahead, pissed off Aaron Rodgers, disrespected Aaron Rodgers, and drafted a guy. Moved up and drafted a guy. He didn't play one single snap the entire year. So now you're gonna trade Aaron Rodgers to bring back to to bring in a guy who's just as young or around the same age as Drew as uh Jordan Love and Drew Lock. What in the hell did we do all this for? If at least the very least in the next year or two when he got drafted, that Jordan Love wouldn't be the man. Wasn't that the plan all along? You guys thought that Aaron Rodgers was through. You thought he was washed up, so you go ahead and you draft Jordan Love. You move up to draft Jordan Love unapologetically, go ahead and draft Jordan Love. Don't tell Aaron Rodgers to disrespect my goodness gracious and you draft Jordan Love. And then after one season, I'm not playing at all and causing all this consternation that will ultimately lead to Aaron Rodgers going somewhere else. All of this nonsense is for Jordan Love not to start for the 2021 season? Huh? And then you're so enamored with this guy? You're so in love with this guy? Speaking of Jordan Love, that you go ahead and you go ahead and you um, trade for a quarterback, another young quarterback? Don't give me this well of Four competition bullshit. No. No. So all of this, I don't know. I don't know. Glass half full if you're a Packer fan. Look. Aaron Rodgers is not going to be there. Fuck it. Let's see what we can have in Jordan Love. Maybe ultimately, if he balls out in minicamp, stretching, stretching, stretching here, like Stretch Armstrong, maybe we can convince the team to take him. I don't know, man. I'm just thinking out my ass. But at least this will give them some idea about what's the progression, what's the development so far of Jordan Love. So that's – uh. That's all I have for Aaron Love. Aaron Love. Wow. Aaron's in love. Question. How much is Aaron in love? So uh, that's my Aaron Rodgers stuff for today. That's my NFL stuff for today. I can't. I can't. I can't go on. Julio Jones getting traded. Okay. Talk about situation. Aaron Rodgers. Play the hits. All right. All right. You want me to talk about Aaron Rodgers? I'll give you Aaron Rodgers, but uh, that's enough for the NFL. I mean, we got NBA playoffs going on. We got all of this stuff going on, so you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get into that. So before I get into these Eastern Conference Finals, I'm going to because you know during my time back east when I saw my mother hanging in there doing well, and I saw the most fabulous, wonderful, awesome, talented intelligent human being under the age of 52 my wonderful awesome goddaughter sydney davis um i was thinking about some of the old females that i used to say hello to back in the day when i used to live in the area and i asked cupid i said cupid could you draw back your bow and let your arrow go straight to my lover's heart for me nobody but me cupid please hear my cry and let your arrow fly straight to my lover's heart for me but uh Before I start ripping and roaring and getting into the Eastern Conference round of the NBA playoffs, spinners, could you indulge me for a second with Cupid? If you would, not Sam Cooke, not even Otis Redding, spinners, Cupid, if you would, please. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Now it's time to get back to the show. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Thank you, Spinners. Appreciate it. All right, talking about what's happening in the NBA, the playoffs, second round, Eastern and Western Conference. Let's get to the Eastern Conference first, shall we? The Philadelphia 76ers and the Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta Falcons. God damn it. The Philadelphia 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks series tied at one game apiece. Joel Embiid has been an absolute positive monster. The first two games of the conference semifinals have been great in the playoffs so far. One of the top performers. He averaged 24 points, seven rebounds against my Washington Wizards in the first round. He had games of 36 points, 30 points, averaged 24 minutes a game doing it. As I mentioned before, I think it was in game three, he was actually serial killing every member of the Washington Wizards on the basketball court. And when I mean serial killing, serial killing their pride, serial killing their ability to play basketball again, he was absolutely dominant and awesome. Poor Daniel Gafford and Alex Lynn didn't have a chance. Now, he was injured in game four after only 11 minutes, which brought his average down to 24 points per game in the series. He missed game five with a small lateral meniscus tear. First two games against Atlanta, though, still with the tear, still being injured, still not 100 percent, still not close to being 100 percent. He averaged 39 and a half points, 11 rebounds, two block shots per game in 36 and a half minutes. He's shooting 54 percent from the field and he's been to the line 31 times in two games. That is is being dominant, my friends and enemies, playing like he's uh, pissed off that he didn't win the NBA MVP. That went to Nikola Jokic. Should have gone to Nikola Jokic. But in terms of MVP, in terms of what your definition is for the MVP, because very ambiguous, doesn't you can take it any direction when you're speaking about a team, a player winning the MVP. Is it the best player on the best team? Is it the guy with the most stats? Is it the best storyline that we can come up with, is it based on what he's done for a couple of seasons? Is it based on what he means to his team? Does it mean that, as I mentioned before, he's the best player on the best team, so obviously that means he's the MVP of the league? All of those things come into play, so there's really not one definition in terms of what an MVP is. For me, my definition of an MVP for this season was Nikola Jokic. For what he did, the amount of games that he played, how important he was to his team, the way that Denver still uh, rocked the boat and held it afloat after uh, after uh, Jamal Murray went down for the season of uh, the way that he basically carried that team. I think that uh, he's very deserving, in my opinion, of the MVP. But when you're speaking about most valuable player, we're going to find out very quickly that um, Joel Embiid If you're speaking about who is the most important player, who means the most for that team, who impacts winning or losing the most for that team, what team cannot be without their best player and still somehow, some way survive, I think that Joel Embiid is going to be a great test to that theory, to that definition, to what that definition would be if you're saying that this is the MVP. Because, let me tell you something, man, he suffered, again, speaking about Embiid, He suffered a small lateral meniscus tear in his right knee during game four of the Philadelphia 76ers first round win over the Washington Wizards. How long can he keep playing on a consistent high level? Because it's an injury that's going to require either surgical repair or removal when the season's over. So this is something that is not going to be done with the rest. If the 76ers beat the Hawks in five games and, all of a sudden Milwaukee finds their pride in their basketball and somehow stretches this semifinal Eastern Conference semifinal contest they're playing against the Brooklyn Nets. If they, you know, push it to seven games and all this other stuff, rest is not going to cure what ails Joel Embiid in terms of his knee is concerned. So for the rest of this season, for the rest of the playoff series, he is not going to be anywhere close to 100% healthy. He didn't even play once again in the series clinching game five against My Wiz, and his status remained questionable hours up until game one of the Eastern Conference semifinal matchup against Atlanta. So there was a situation where he was in jeopardy of even missing that game. So, how, what are we talking about here if you're the Philadelphia 76ers? Again, most valuable player for his team. When Joel Embiid is in the lineup, Philadelphia has outscored Atlanta by 27 points in 73 minutes. When he's not on the court, the Atlanta Falcons... Jesus, that's the second time. Three strikes and then I'm out. The Atlanta Hawks have outscored Philadelphia by 15 in the 23 minutes that he's rested. That's MVP, my man. That's most valuable player. Impact that he has on his team. Because Joel's going to have to play at a dominant level of basketball, that the Sixers are going to win the championship. If they're going to get past a feisty, tough, Nick McMillan-led Atlanta Hawk team, especially after giving up home court advantage, if they're going to go ahead and beat the Hawks, then in the Eastern Conference Finals beat the Brooklyn Nets, let's go on the assumption that Brooklyn is going to get by or going to blow out or win their series against Milwaukee and then you get to the Eastern Conference Finals, if Brooklyn is going to be playing at the high level that they're playing at right now, I don't care about Ben Simmons. I don't care about Tobias Harris. I don't care about Shakir Milton. I don't care about... Uh, Dwight Howard. I don't care about Tyrese Maxey. I don't care about Matisse Theibel. I don't care about any of those guys. The key for the 76ers, the only chance that the Philadelphia 76ers have of getting past the Brooklyn Nets in the Eastern Conference Finals, that the Brooklyn Nets are going to play anywhere close to the level that they're playing at right now, is for Joel Embiid to be dominant and even raise his game even more and for his domination is concerned in the Eastern Conference Finals, if they make it that far, and if the Brooklyn Nets make it that far. That's the only way that the Philadelphia 76ers are going to win. He's going to have to have the equal dominance. Remember, bringing it back to 2001 and the NBA playoffs and the NBA finals in particular. Do you remember, if you're too young or whatever, sorry, but do you remember in 2001 the playoff that Shaquille O'Neal had? Well, he was at his absolute beastie prime with the Los Angeles Lakers, do you remember the way that he absolutely devoured, destroyed, ransacked the Philadelphia 76ers and Allen Iverson from Georgetown University, Dikembe Mutombo, the center from Georgetown University, Aaron McKee and and those guys. And, and um, oh, wow, shit, I forgot the other guy's name. But basically, the Larry Brown-led Philadelphia 76ers. Do you remember in that 2001 NBA playoff series how – Hurricane Shaquille just demolished everything in his path wearing a Philadelphia 76er uniform, and he completely bludgeoned, beat up, destroyed, annihilated. Um, the Kimbe Mutombo with his strength, with his size, with his girth, with his skill, with his athleticism. The D- Mutombo, who by the way was multiple time NBA Defensive Player of the Year, seven foot two with a long wingspan did not stand a chance in that series against Shaquille. In that finals, he averaged 33 points, 16 rebounds, shot 57% from the floor and averaged 45 minutes a game. Shaquille O'Neal was never better. In his career, one of the most dominant big men in NBA history, he was never as dominant as he was for the 2001 playoffs, and in particular, the 2001 NBA Finals. If the Philadelphia 76ers of 2020-2021 going into the 2021 NBA playoffs, that the Philadelphia 76ers are going to win themselves a championship, that's the type of dominance that Joel Embiid is going to have to present. He's going to have to go ahead, if they get past the Atlanta Hawks, and even against the Atlanta Hawks, he's going to have to be dominant. But if you're speaking about them getting past the Hawks and then going to the Eastern Conference Finals and playing the Brooklyn Nets, he's going to have to be even more dominant. He's going to have to bring his game to a higher level, and he's going to have to be on the floor the majority amount of the time. You can't manage his minutes. This is not the regular season. This is not game 43 in February. We're not at, we're not playing the Indiana, the uh, Indiana Pacers. Okay. We're not playing the Orlando Magic. We're not playing the Oklahoma City Thunder. We're not playing the Chicago Bulls. We are in the Eastern Conference Finals of the NBA playoffs playing against a three-headed monster known as Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden of the Brooklyn Nets. The only chance that the Philadelphia 76ers have of winning that game, of winning that series, is to have Joel and Embiid go Shaquille O'Neal 2001 or close to it. As a Philadelphia 76er fan, are you comfortable with that? Are you confident in that? Are you, are you confident in Joel and Embiid being able to play at that level and be sustainable at that level for a certain amount of time? Because if you take a look, Look, the maximum amount of games, I did the uh, math, did the homework today in class. The maximum amount of games Philadelphia is going to have to play to win a championship. Right now, they're 1-1, second round of the Eastern Conference semifinals against the Atlanta Falcons. So for them, from now on, moving forward, game three and beyond, the maximum amount of games that Philadelphia is going to have to play to win a championship is going to be nineteen. If the Hawks take them to seven games, if the Brooklyn Nets or Milwaukee Bucks take them to seven games, and then in the NBA Finals, if the Western Conference champ takes Philadelphia to the seven games, all of those games, you add it up is 19 games, four, 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 and then another four, 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 and then another seven here, whatever. The least amount of games, let's say that Philadelphia gets hot and just, just goes buck flipping wild and doesn't lose another game. The least amount of games that they're going to play for this season is going to be 11. So, of course, the likelihood for Philadelphia, if they're going to win a championship, is somewhere between 19 and 11. I don't think they're going to go seven games for all of their series, and I don't think they're going to sweep all of their series. So somewhere, if they're going to win a championship, they're going to be playing somewhere around 14 to 15 to 16 games. The most consecutive games that Joel Embiid has ever played in his career is 26. And that was almost three years ago when he averaged a career high of 33.7 minutes per game. So in those 26 games that he played in a row, he was averaging somewhere around 33, 34 minutes. That was three years ago. Since then, the most consecutive games he's played is 12. And that was in February of 2020. And that streak came to an end. Why? Because he suffered a shoulder sprain. So the longest stretch he's been playing without injury or required... Uh, rest this season is nine games and he averaged only 31 points per game. So even though that he was playing and there wasn't a, uh, you, know, C- you know, did not play because of a um, rest or fake injury or something like that, he was still modified in terms of his presence and in terms of his impact because he must've been on some type of minutes restriction because he was only averaging 31 minutes per game. So if you're asking Joel Embiid, who, as I mentioned before, has played the most he's played after playing 26 games in a row three years ago is 12. And the longest stretch he's played this season is nine, and that was on low minutes. For Philadelphia to win the championship, Joel Embiid is going to have to be there every single night for at least 38 to 42 minutes per game, especially as the competition gets tougher as you move on in these playoffs. Are you comfortable? Are you comfortable? Are confident that Joel Embiid could do that because if Joel Embiid is unavailable or damaged, I'm telling you right now, forget about thinking about trying to get to the NBA Finals and getting past Milwaukee or Brooklyn. They ain't going to get past Atlanta. Because let me ask you something. Where do you go if Joel Embiid is ineffective, unavailable, injured, ministry restriction, whatever, not on the floor when it counts, Philadelphia, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Can you trust Ben Simmons with his lack of offense and poor free-throw shooting, Hacker Simmons, Hacker Ben? I mean, how much Ben Simmons' lack of scoring and poor free-throw shooting supersede his playmaking and defensive prowess, right? Because that's what Doc Doc Rivers, uh, Black America's head coach, that's what he's always talking about. Well, yeah, I don't want to hear about the fact that he doesn't shoot threes, and I don't want to hear the fact that he doesn't score enough, and I don't want to hear the fact that, he doesn't shoot jumpers because man, you guys are disrespecting him and you're not taking into account what other things he brings to the table, and that shows your ignorance toward basketball because what he brings in terms of playmaking, what he brings in terms of getting the guys in the right direction to be uh in good position to make good shots and his defensive prowess and what he does and his ability and his versatility to guard everybody, that supersedes that, you know, that, that more than makes up the fact that he won't shoot anything outside of three feet. And the fact that he's absolutely terrified in a close game when he's being hacked and and going to the foul line. And look, in game one against Atlanta, he scored 17 points. Seven for seven shooting. For him, that's like, you know, being a ball hog when you shoot seven times in the game. But he was three for 10 from the free throw line. With Scott Brooks in the Washington, my Washington Wiz started in terms of Hacker Simmons in the first round of the playoffs, that's only going to continue. In these playoffs, this is not going away. So look, in game two, we scored four points, two or three shooting, had seven assists, two rebounds. Why? Because he was hesitant in terms of doing what he needed to do because he did not want any part of going to the free throw line. If you're going to be playing the Brooklyn Nets, we're going to need you for your defense on Kevin Durant. We're also going to need you to try to hit some free throws. So it's going to be nice if you slow down. No one's stopping Kevin Durant, but if you can slow down and make it harder for Kevin Durant to score 25 to 35, that's great. But how much would it mean, how much is that going to be mitigated, your defense on Kevin Durant, if you can't make a free throw? Every time after two minutes, the ball's going to be stopped. The momentum, the rhythm, any type of rhythm or momentum that Philadelphia might have is going to be stopped inside a certain amount of time because the Nets are going to be putting Ben Simmons on the line where, at the very best, he's going to be going one for two from the free throw line. Can Tobias Harris be the go-to scorer at, other than Embiid? The Philadelphia 76ers have. The Philadelphia's, the 76ers only have one player outside of Embiid who can get a bucket. Steph Curry can't get a bucket by himself. Matisse Thibault can't get a bucket by himself. Danny Green, sure, can't get a basket by himself. The only two players on the Philadelphia 76ers with any type of acumen to go ahead and get the ball and get two points without the need of an offense, without the need of a perfect play to get them a wide-open shot at the rim or or 15, 18 feet away from the basket. The only two players that can go ahead and create their own shots on Philadelphia is Joel Embiid, who's extraordinary in that because he's a dominant big man. But the other one is Tobias Harris. Tobias Harris is the only guy with a shot clock running down. Throw the ball out to him and let's see what he can do. You take a look at the other top scorers. You take a look at the other go-to scorers for title contending teams. And yo, look, so far in the playoffs, Tobias has been great. As far as scoring the basketball is concerned. He's averaging 24 points per game. Had a 37-point game in the first game against the Wizards. But moving forward... If your best perimeter scorer, or your best go-to shot maker or shot creator, is Tobias Harris, <clears throat> take a look at the other teams that are still. <clears throat> excuse me, take a look at the other teams that are still in the playoffs, and take a look at their top scores. Take a look at their shot creators. Take a look at their guys that can get buckets without having to uh, run an offense that can bail out an offense. Brooklyn has K.D. James Harden, Kyrie Irving. Any one of those guys, of course, they're the best. Some of them are, two of those guys are the best that's ever done it. And the other guys might be the most talented who's ever done it. So Brooklyn has three of those guys where it's like, you know what? Shot clock's running down. Give me the ball. Let me go ahead and make something happen. Atlanta has Trey Young. Milwaukee has a poor man's Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. And, and, And in some instances, Giannis. Utah has Donovan Mitchell. We saw what he did in the second half of the first game of the Western Conference semifinals against the Clippers. The Clippers have Kawhi. Phoenix has Devin Booker. Denver has Michael Porter Jr. Now his back's all screwed up, so we don't know, but he has Michael Porter. Denver has Michael Porter Jr. and Nikola Jokic. Where, where is Tobias Harris fitting in with that? Where on the list of players who can go ahead from the perimeter and score and get their things going and get a shot up, and be dominant from that position, where would you put Tobias Harris? Not anywhere near Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. Not anywhere near Devin Booker. Not anywhere near Kawhi Leonard. Not anywhere near Devon uh, 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 Mitchell. Not anywhere near Trey Young. Not anywhere near Donovan Mitchell, thank you. So where are we going here? Is Tobias Harris going to be that guy? If Embiid can't go... Who's going to pick up the slack? Who's going to be the player for Philadelphia that's going to pick up the majority of the 24, 28, uh, 29, 35 points that he's scoring? We're not expecting Tobias Harris to do it all by himself, but he's got to be the main guy because as I mentioned before, if you're going to be looking for Ben Simmons to pick up the slack, if you're looking for Steph Curry to pick up the slack, if you're looking for Tyrese Maxey to pick up the slack, if you're looking for anybody else to pick up the slack, the Philadelphia 76ers aren't going to be making it past the Atlanta Hawks. So moving forward with Philadelphia, that's a question you've got to ask. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Danny Green, if we're speaking about Philadelphia, if Embiid is hobbled and people need to step up and fill his shoes, are you going to be looking to Danny Green? Because he's done his annual abysmal three-point shooting streak in the playoffs now. First two games against Atlanta, he's 1 of 9 from the three-point line, and he's shooting 31% from the floor. This is not something that's out of character. This is starting to become an annual event, like Chris Paul getting injured, and, um, yeah, something like that. You know, last two playoff seasons with the Lakers in Toronto, at the playoffs have gone on, Danny Green has been horrible. What's even more interesting and funnier is the fact that despite his abysmal shooting and lending nothing in terms of shooting, spacing the floor for their teams, the Lakers and the Raptors have overcome that and won championships. Last season in the NBA Finals against Miami, when he was with the Lakers, Green shot 11 for 38 from three-point range, which is 27%, and shot 30% overall. This man was getting death death threats from idiots, from idiot Laker fans, and maybe some disgruntled gamblers, you know, about how bad that he was doing. Two seasons ago, when Danny Green was with uh, Toronto... He shot 4-23, of 23, which is 15% from the three-point line and 17% overall in the conference finals against Milwaukee. And then in the finals against the Golden State Warriors, he was 12-33 of 33 for 26% and 31% overall from the field. So Danny Green is doing his regular disappearing act in the NBA playoffs. If Embiid is in dominant, where are we going here? What are we going to do here? And the Hawks are feisty. Bogdanovich is a guy who can get off his own shot. Capella isn't scared of Embiid. He's going to take it to him, so Embiid is not going to have the advantage like he had in the first round of playing against someone like a Daniel Gafford or an Alex Lynn, where he can kind of rest that knee a little bit on the defensive end and just kind of clog the middle. Capella is going to be a guy that's going to be challenging him on the pick and roll. Trey Young is going to be a guy that's going to challenge him on the pick and roll. He's going to have to move his feet. He's going to have to move his legs. He's going to have to move his knees, speaking about Embiid. Capello, while not the girth that Joel Embiid has, he's still a spry, quick-jumping, athletic big man that Embiid is going to have to be uh, concerned about. Not maybe on the offensive side of the ball in terms of back-to-the-basket moves or post-moves, but keeping him off the glass. Again, Atlanta's going home for two games. Atlanta has a real shot. And give it up for Mc- Nate McMillan, who challenged the Hawks to play better defense once Lloyd Pierce was gone. And while Trey Young is never going to be a guy to be confused on a defensive end with Gary Payton and Tony Allen, his effort and his attention to playing defense has become a lot greater with Nick McMillan. And Atlanta is a very underrated defensive defensive team. They've got a lot of uh, versatility on their squad. They got Lou Williams coming off the bench. They got De- Danilo Gallinari coming off the bench who can uh, provide scoring from different angles, from different uh, places on the floor. Now, DeAndre Hunter had to play because of a knee injury, but when healthy, he's a good 3-and-D guy. I, I disrespected Atlanta a little bit, but those guys are for real in terms of being true contenders to beat Philadelphia. Not saying that they're going to do it, but again, they have the advantage of going back home. So we'll see. We, we, we will see. Don't think that if Atlanta gets past Philadelphia, that they have a shot against Brooklyn, they would have a shot against uh, Milwaukee. But at the end you also have to think that if Milwaukee comes back after being blown out like they did in the first two games, especially in game two and they go ahead and they beat Brooklyn, their confidence has got to be sky. Their, their confidence would be sky high and through the roof. And a team that would be playing that well, going into the Eastern Conference final, the redemption tour uh, continues, and they're coming off that high, I don't think it would bode well for the Atlanta Hawks. So, you know, we'll take a look at that series. But um, as of right now, man, getting back to Philadelphia, the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, the best record in the Eastern Conference. Moving forward, Joel Embiid, Shaquille O'Neal, 2001 dominant, you have to be at that level, or the way the Brooklyn Nets are playing, the Philadelphia 76ers won't have a chance. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us. Talking about what's happening in the NBA playoffs, the second round, Western Conference, Eastern Conference, getting into what's going down there. Talked about the Philadelphia 76ers, talked about the Atlanta Hawks, talked about that series, talked about Joel Embiid. Now, let's get into some Brooklyn Nets versus the Milwaukee Bucks. As I mentioned before, Game 3 is going to be coming up tomorrow. It'll be interesting to see how... The Bucks respond after getting humiliated, after getting obliterated, after getting embarrassed by the Brooklyn Nets, 125-86. Kevin Durant, as I mentioned before in the first segment, 32 points, four rebounds, six assists, 12 of 18 from the field. Kyrie Irving put up 22 points, grabbed five rebounds, dished out six assists, Nets shooting 50% from the three-point range, 52% overall, beat down from beginning to end, it was a joke. It was a laugh. And when I was talking about the 76ers and I was talking about the Atlanta Hawks, mainly focusing on the 76ers in my last, um, episode, in my last segment, speaking about the Eastern Conference semifinals, and I was making the assumption. That if the Philadelphia 76ers can make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, I was mainly using the Brooklyn Nets as a tool to say, you know, how are they going to match up against the Brooklyn Nets? How are the Philadelphia 76ers, if Embiid is not going to be 100%, if Embiid is not going to be able to dominate, how are they, how are the Philadelphia 76ers going to fare against the Brooklyn Nets two games in, already in the Eastern Conference semifinals dissing, the Milwaukee Bucks thinking that the Milwaukee Bucks possibly cannot come back after the beatdown that they received the other night. The fact that, you know what? It wasn't just, it went, 25 86 beatdown. It wasn't just one game. It wasn't the Brooklyn Nets doing what they had to do to maintain home court advantage by winning the first two games at home. It was the way that beatdown was delivered. And if you take a look at the past history of the Milwaukee Bucks, then you start to think, well, wait a minute. How is this going to carry over to game three and four in terms of is this loss in game two for the Milwaukee Bucks actually a loss and a half, maybe two losses in terms of their confidence, in terms of their psyche? You take a look, losing to the Toronto Raptors in the Eastern Conference Finals, losing four games in a row two years ago, last year in the bubble, losing to the Miami Heat in five games. Now, with the way the Brooklyn Nets are playing, there's a strong possibility that this could be a four-game sweep and the and the semifinals that was supposed to be the team that was going to win that series was going to win the championship, all of a sudden now looks like it's Looks like it's very much mediocre and very much over. How are the Bucks going to respond to that criticism? I always say, I always say for the most part, look, when you're speaking about professional athletes, especially when you're speaking about teams or players, individuals, athletes who play at such a high level, if you're speaking about, for instance, the Milwaukee Bucks, All of this nonsense about, you know, the outside noise. Let me tell you something. These guys don't give a hoot's ass about what I'm thinking about, what I'm talking about, what my opinions are. They don't give a damn about talk radio. They don't even give a damn so much about the fans. These guys are going to be isolated. These guys are going to be insulated from the outside noise, from the trash, from people saying they're no good, this, that, and the other. That's not going to be the problem. The problem for the Milwaukee Bucks was going to be going in, playing at home, realizing the beatdown that they received, and then what's going to be happening if Kevin Durant hits a couple of jumpers? What happens if Kyrie Irving starts shaking and raking and mooking and duking and shuking? And going to the line and doing this type of thing. What happens if Brooklyn continues to play at the level that they're playing at right now? How does the confident level? It doesn't care about what's going to be said on Milwaukee Sports Talk Radio. Doesn't matter what's going to be said by fools from the blog. Doesn't matter what's going to be said on social media. Doesn't matter what's going to be about the opinionated pieces in the press. It doesn't matter about any of that stuff. It's once you get on the court and once you start playing basketball and you have that opponent in front of you, all of a sudden all that other nonsense is going to be blocked out. No time anywhere during the game, with the Milwaukee Bucks winning, losing, or anything else, are these guys going to be sitting there on the court in between free throws, sitting there going, gee, I remember what that person said in the comments section on Twitter. Oh my goodness gracious, does that and the other, that doesn't happen, not going to happen. It's a matter of the Brooklyn Nets imposing their will and crushing the belief and the confidence of the Milwaukee Bucks. How are the Bucs going to maintain their belief and confidence when, if, the Brooklyn Nets continue to play the way that they're playing? Of course, playing in front of your home crowd, you have that extra incentive. But still, how are the Brooklyn Nets, or excuse me, how are the Milwaukee Bucks going to respond to that? And again, this is going to be a game where Brooklyn is going to be playing without James Harden. And this was a beatdown of... Of of such proportion without James Harden, where again it's going to have Milwaukee thinking, "Goodness gracious, what are we what are we doing?" It it almost reminds me, if you think about it, it almost reminds me when I was thinking about this game between Brooklyn and the Milwaukee Bucks, brought me back to two thousand and one, and it brought me back to two thousand and one. It reminded me of the Western Conference Finals between the San Antonio Spurs. And the Los Angeles Lakers. And if you remember, if you don't remember, then learn something, and listen. If you remember in 2001, the two best teams in the NBA at that time, record-wise, and really as far as the entirety of the NBA is concerned, were the San Antonio Spurs and the Los Angeles Lakers. I think that year that San Antonio won 58 games, Los Angeles had won 57 games, and San Antonio... Had had some success during the regular season against Kobe and Shaq and those guys, Derek Fisher and those guys during the regular season. So the team of Tim Duncan and David Robinson and Antonio Daniels and Sean Elliott and, and those guys and Danny Ferry and those guys, San Antonio coached by Greg Popovich in the, in the rhythm, in the space, in the time and place where San Antonio and the Lakers were vying for dynasty status. This was going to be the series that was going to determine who was going to win the NBA championship. Now, unlike the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets, which is a conference semifinals, this example that I've giving you between the Lakers and the Spurs back in 2001, this was a Western Conference final. And as you saw in the Eastern Conference, that the winner, I believe, it was either going to be Toronto or it was going to be... I know Philadelphia was either playing Toronto or... Oh, I forgot who else they played in the um, Eastern Conference Finals, but no match for either the Spurs or the Lakers, so this was the de facto championship series right here, and everybody was expecting this, you know, epic seven-game series between these two superior teams in the NBA, and you had the David Robinson versus Shaquille O'Neal mashup, and Tim Duncan was a superstar, almost getting their franchise player, almost getting there, but already qualified, already solidified as one of the better players in the NBA, and you had Kobe and the Shaq dynamic, and that uh, drama, and that response, and that Minertia going around, and so this was supposed to be a titanic heavyweight match that was going to go seven games, and this, that, and the other. The Spurs had home court advantage, and this, that, and the other. Well, um, to make a long story not as long, the Los Angeles Lakers, if you remember, blew out, absolutely destroyed, absolutely ripped the heart, absolutely eviscerated, absolutely dismantled the San Antonio Spurs in four games. And I remember watching games three and four at uh, <clears> at <throat> excuse me at Staples Center. Games one and two were played in San Antonio, and look, Lakers won the first game going away, I, I believe, by double figures, and they were competitive. But early on, you saw in the series that uh oh man, the Lakers have kind of hit their stride and they're doing their thing because, you know, you had the Kobe and Shaq nonsense and, you know, you had the guys not getting along and the Lakers starting slowly and taking the regular season off and all this kind of stuff. And the Spurs, you know, being a very professional, consistent team and somehow, some way, we were going to equate the success that the Spurs had against the Lakers during the regular season to bowl over and move over to the conference championship. So this was going to re- this is what the reason why, even though... Man, the man! They had the two most dominant players at that time. Speaking about the Lakers with Kobe and Shaq, that you know, because of team play, because of the system, and everything like that, and the lackadaisical inconsistency and lack of chemistry that the Los Angeles Lakers had at that time. That this was again going to be a heavyweight fight to determine who was going to move on to the championship round and beat whoever came out of the Eastern Conference in four or five games. So the Lakers put the smackdown on them beat them beat them like they were uh beat them like they were stepchildren and i remember game 3 and 4 the final scores were 111 to 72 and 111 to 82 and the one thing that i remember clear as it just happened 15 minutes ago the look of just absolute dismay it looked like the the, the looks on the faces at the bench, on the bench, as Derrick Fisher continued to hit corner threes over and over and over and over again. And it was almost to complete that the series was going to be a rout, that the Lakers were the highly superior team, and that the Spurs had absolutely no chance as the lead continued to grow. And it got to 20, and then 25, and then 30, and 35. In the fourth quarter, The looks of bewilderment and dismay on the faces of Tim Duncan and David Robinson, both Game three and four, they look punch drunk. They look like someone, you know when a boxer first gets knocked out and they have the look on their face like, where am I? What's happening? What's going on? That was the look, the stare that David Robinson and Tim Duncan were giving, the camera showed them giving as the Lakers continued to whip their ass and the crowd was going into a frenzy and going crazy. It was just what the fuck just happened? How did we get here? What in the hell happened? And I bring up that story to say, this could be very easily the same type of scenario for the 2021 Eastern conference semifinal playoff round in the Eastern conference between the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers where, excuse me, the Brooklyn Nets and the um, Milwaukee Bucks where what was supposed to be a Titanic title match, heavyweight match between two teams itching to go to the NBA finals and having the ability to win it, win it, it looks like it's just going to be one big major blowout. So we will see. We will see, man, going home, the Bucks. I mean, whether you lose by four or 40, a Bootenholzer said, man, a loss is still a loss. And really, if the Bucks played their cards right, again, it's only just one game. And Brooklyn only held service. All it takes is one game. All it takes for Milwaukee going back home, winning this game. And then all of a sudden now, the storylines are going to be reading, well, does Milwaukee... Has Milwaukee found their juice? Has Milwaukee found their groove? Has Milwaukee found their confidence? What's going on now with James Harden? All of a sudden, now the James Harden injury situation becomes that much more prevalent, becomes that much more serious for the Brooklyn Nets. Of course, depending upon what happens, if the Milwaukee Bucks come back to uh, Milwaukee and blows out the the, uh, Brooklyn Nets by 15, 20, 25, ah, we've got something here. Then everything changes. Then the narrative changes and it changes quickly just on one victory if you remember the 1998 NBA finals between I was it 96 98 I don't know whenever the uh, game I think it was game 4 between the Utah Jazz and the Chicago Bulls where I think the Bulls with Michael Jordan and Pippen and Steve Kerr those guys I think it was game 4 at the Chicago Center or whenever whatever Chicago whatever they were playing their home games They blew out the Jazz like 98 to 54, some nonsense like that. 98 to 54. Yes, the Jazz scored 54, 56, somewhere around there. It was either 54 or 56, whatever it was. It was embarrassing. It was horrible. The Bulls had a 3-1 lead. Jordan was Jordan was doing a thing, and everybody was like, Well, this shit is over. You know, after after a beatdown like this, we know that Jordan ain't gonna even give a smidgen of hope for the Utah Jazz to come back in Game 5 and do anything. You know, pop the champagne and let's get things going. Well, the Utah Jazz came back the next game, won uh, won Game 5 at Chicago Stadium, then came back to Utah where they lost when Michael Jordan committed an offensive foul by pushing off on Brian Russell to hit the uh, left elbow extended jumper to win the basketball game and their sixth championship for the Chicago Bulls. So my thing is, is that, hey, man, even just because one team looked absolutely horrible and terrible, and yes, we can kind of go back and rifle through and take a look at the history of the Milwaukee Bucks and the playoffs over the last couple of years, that I'm not, I'm not ready just yet to say that this is a blowout, that this is going to be bullshit, that this is going to be, you know, a non-competitive series. I still think going back home If the Milwaukee Bucks can look impressive and win game three, then we've got something going here. Then we've got ourselves a series. Then we have the hope, the fingers crossed, that possibly, maybe, maybe, that the um, Eastern Conference semifinals between the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks can live up to all of our heightened expectations. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A beautiful evening here. What I'm doing is, I'm recording this now after the Phoenix Suns beat up on the Denver Nuggets. The game is just over. I have to wake up in about four hours. But I wanted to go ahead and uh, get some thoughts and opinions about the blowout that I just saw between the Suns and the Nuggets with the Nuggets basically saying fuck it we're done we're going to go ahead back O2 and see what we can do the whole serve so going to get into the Western Conference as far as the nuggets and the suns are concerned but first I want to talk about the Utah Jazz beating the Los Angeles Clippers I mentioned before in a great competitive game intense game one 112 to 109 the jazz overcame a terrible shooting first half to outscore la 65 49 in the second half 32 to 19. In the second quarter, Donovan Mitchell was absolutely positively, undeniably outstanding in the game. 32 points in the second half, 45 for the game. It was uh game two was uh it's gonna be tomorrow, tomorrow night or later on today, whatever, whenever you're watching this or whatever listening to this or whatever. The one thing I want to be talking about in this series, and it's going to be a good series, it's going to be a competitive series. As I mentioned before in the first segment, I thought that the Clippers coming off the grueling seven-game series against the Dallas Mavericks uh, ran out of gas, but now they're going to have themselves acclimated to get a couple of days to gather themselves, get themselves a new opponent in terms of what they need to do to combat that, to look over film, do all those type of things, and also for the Utah Jazz to get more acclimated with the team that they're going to be playing a lot tougher than the Memphis Grizzlies, a lot to prove, not only with the Utah Jazz, but also with the Los Angeles Clippers, I would say that it's probably as far the teams that are left in the playoffs right now for the NBA that the Los Angeles Clippers have the most to prove, the fact that uh, you have Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, the The redemption tour of Paul George continues even though it hit a speed bump last night. If you take a look at all of the baggage that the Clippers took from last season where they were boasting, they were bragging, they were sticking their chest out, they were talking about how great they were before they won anything, then the absolute collapse that they had against the Denver Nuggets to lose a 3-1 lead and to ultimately lose the series in the bubble and all of the nonsense that came from that and even some of the fighting in between players, some of the players from the old regime clashing with some of the superstars from the new regime. Why does Kawhi Leonard get to pick and choose what he wants to do? Why are we running on Kawhi time when we were so successful before running on Los Angeles Clippers time? So there was that dynamic, how much leeway, Doc was giving both Paul George and Kawhi Leonard to basically do whatever they want. Not so much Kawhi Leonard, but Paul George. Damn, man, at least Kawhi Leonard won a couple of championships. What the hell did Paul George ever done to uh, receive all the, the star treatment that Doc was giving him? So going into the season, new coaching change, bringing in Ty off the uh, from the assistant role to becoming the head coach and making the... Necessary changes: bringing in Luke Kennard, bringing in Serge Ibaka, letting go the sixth man of the year, Montrez Harrell near the end of the trade deadline this season, making the move to ship out uh, Lou Williams. So, there's a lot of things going on with the Los Angeles Clippers. The expectation that has needs to be met by the Los Angeles Clippers in the eyes of Steve uh, Ballmer, the owner of that team. So, there's a lot of things riding with the Clippers. So. You know, there's a lot to play for. There's a lot to play for all these teams in terms of just winning the championship, number one. But if you're taking a look at the team that's probably under the hottest spotlight, it's going to be the Los Angeles Clippers. So for later on today or tomorrow, whenever you're going to be taking a look at it, when they play Thursday night in Salt Lake again, I expect uh, same the same type of intensity, the same type of competitive spirit from both teams. It'll be interesting to see in the first half If the Utah Jazz can shoot a lot better from the three-point line than they did this past game one, where in the first half they missed, what, 21 consecutive shots? They went 20-18 Houston Rockets in terms of uh, missing shots in a row. And then you have the Los Angeles Clippers letting go a 13-point lead in the second half. Was it a situation where Quinn Snyder and the Jazz made the adjustments or was it a situation where truly the Los Angeles Clippers ran out of gas? Are they going to be able to survive survive, speaking about the Utah Jazz continuing to play Rudy Gobert when the Clippers go small and you have the lineup, say, for instance, of a Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard and such, that small ball lineup, the inability for the Clippers to exploit the Jazz in Rudy Gobert when Paul George and such were on the perimeter on a pick and roll switch, especially on the left side of the Clippers were unable, Paul George playoff P was unable to make them pay for that during the crunch time moments in the fourth quarter. If if it's going to come down to that again, will Paul George, I, I mean, Rudy Gobert is the defensive player of the year, third time in four years, but he's mainly the defensive player of the year because of his ability to guard the paint and guard around the basket and intimidate and... Uh, do those type of things. It's not so much uh, being on the perimeter, guarding people one-on-one. So when this happens again, will Paul George be able to take advantage of that? What other situations, what other changes will happen? Will Luke Kennard get the same amount of minutes despite the fact he shot well? His defensive liabilities were on full bore when the Jazz and Mitchell decided that every single time down the floor in the fourth, we're going to switch and have... Luke Kennard guard him, and he got torched. So all of those things, I'm going to be looking to see what happens in Game 2 between the Clippers and the Utah Jazz. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. But what I'm also interested in, and what I'm also focusing on, and what I'm also concentrating on is Donovan Mitchell. Number 45, becoming a superstar right before our eyes. Mentioned game one, 32 points in the second half, 45 for the game. That's great. That's wonderful. That's awesome. 16 for 30 shooting, 6 for 15 from the three-point line. And look, we talk about, and the guys are talking about this on the uh, telecast, about, you know, Donovan Mitchell scoring another 40 points in a uh, playoff game. That's unbelievable. That's awesome. He's now had four 40-point games in his last 13 playoff games. He's already had as many. 40-point playoff games during his career with the Utah Jazz for what, three, four years. How many games has he played in the playoffs? As I mentioned before, 13. So his 40-point outburst has already equaled the number of 40-point performances by Jazz, a uh, Jazz, uh, Carl Malone, who's, as you might know, let me explain it to you. As for right now, is the second-leading scorer in NBA history. Yeah, Carl Malone might have had 40 points. In a playoff game, he did that uh, four times. It took him 193 playoff games over 19 seasons to get to four. Donovan Mitchell already has that in 13 games. And, and look, I, 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 I know what everybody's going to say. You know what? No big deal. I mean, we're speaking about, you know, with the adjusted measurements of grading such feats as, you know, scoring feats and everything like that with today's game. You can sit there and say what Carl Malone did is a lot more impressive than what Donovan Mitchell did. You can sit there and, you know, the emphasis on the three-point shot, the free-flowing offenses that are being played now in the NBA, the lack of a dominant big man, freedom of movement. I know they've, they've skewed offensive numbers. It's kind of similar to what the NFL, as far as the passing game, is concerned. Remember back in the day... For my generation, when we were sitting around and a guy threw for 300 yards in the game, even 400 yards in the game was like super impressive. Like when someone, when I was growing up, way back when, and you know, the days of, of uh, I mean, with maybe the exception of, of, of Dan Marino, the fact that when someone threw for 400 yards, it was something where it was like, stop the presses, man. This is unbelievable. We got to uh, go ahead and talk about that, all these type of things. Now, it's no big deal when you see someone throw for 400 yards in the game. Why? Because the way the offense has been built, the way the rule changes have skewed to the offense, the way the passing game has come into play, the way the fact that you can't touch a receiver until he's five yards down the field, the way that if you breathe on the quarterback or if you breathe on a wide receiver that it's either going to be roughing the passer or pass interference, all of the ways that the game has opened up, the fact that now... There's a lot of quarterbacks who are averaging 300 yards per game. There's a lot of quarterbacks out there that are now passing for 400 yards a game. So if you're taking a look and you say, wow, Patrick Mahomes is doing this and he's doing that and unbelievable all these 400-yard games and these 300-yard games and he's already got this amount of yards compared to Dan Marino who had to – play X amount of games and X amount of years before he could hit that milestone, or the same with John Elway, or the same with any of these great quarterbacks. Those from that era of Elway and Kelly and Marino and such will sit there and say, well, yeah. But back in the day, when those guys were playing, a quarterback could actually, I don't know, cover a receiver, and it wouldn't be called pass interference. You know, now you could, I don't know, when Dan Marino went back to pass, when John Elway went back to pass, guess what? You could actually... Tackle him. You could actually treat him like a football player and it wasn't a 15-yard penalty. How about that? Wow. So there's just all this other minutia that they give to say the quarterbacks of the day throwing for 300, 400 yards is no big deal because of the rule changes and such. You take a look with 400-yard passing games. There were 10 of them uh, last season and three of them were by Dak Prescott, who even threw for 500 yards his second week of the season against Seattle. So now you have Kirk Cousins and you have Dak Prescott and of course you have Patrick Mahomes and you have Matt Ryan and you have Matthew Stafford and you have Joe Burrow and you have Kyle Murray and you have Josh Allen doing it twice. You have Patrick Mahomes doing it twice. You know, guys like Ryan and Stafford and Joe Burrow and Kirk Cousins. Those aren't the elite of the elites. I mean, these extraordinary numbers used to be set for the all-time greats, for the generational great quarterbacks, for the Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Now you have... Random run-of-the-mill rookies and average quarterbacks throwing for 400 yards uh, in a game in a season. So it's not really that big of a deal. My point is by bringing that up, by bringing up those numbers and bringing up that analogy is to compare it now with these NBA players who are scoring 40 points a game. When Jordan and Kobe and Dominique Wilkins and those guys would put up 40 points in a game, it would be unbelievable. It would be great. It'd be leading the center. It'd be doing all of those things. When Jordan would hit 40, when Jordan would hit 50, when the Iceman would do all these things. And yeah, Jordan led the league with 37 points per game one year. Kobe led the league with 35 points one year and all those type of things back when scoring 40 or scoring 50 was a monumental uh, um, achievement. But still it was a situation where, wow, that was awesome. Now, you have guys putting up 40 points a game. You have guys, not 40 points a game, but you have guys scoring 40 points. You have guys scoring 50 points. So where like, eh, okay, that's fine. No big deal. You know, this, that, and the other. Sure, no problem. But Mitchell, I don't care. I don't care that Mitchell pulling up those numbers. I don't, I don't care. You can use all of the, you know, big deals and back in the day and back when the NBA was for real and back when the, in the when the NBA used to play defense and back when the NBA used to have big men and all this kind of stuff. You can make all of the excuses that you want to. Donovan Mitchell's performance, pulling up 40 points a game and the amount of time that he's been playing in the playoffs is extremely impressive. I don't care what angle. I don't care what avenue you go by. I don't care what judge you have to look over the matter. It's awesome. Last season in the playoffs against Denver, him and Jamal Murray put on a show for the ages, reminiscent of Game 7 between LeBron James and Paul Pierce, reminiscent of Game 7 in the playoffs between Dominique Wilkins and Larry Bird, but those guys did it for a couple of games to put up those type of numbers. Last season, two of the three 40-point games that Donovan Mitchell had, yeah, they were losses. But it was only because Jamal Murray was just as proficient and just as outstanding in terms of scoring points is concerned. When Donovan Mitchell had 57 points, which was most in the playoff game since, what, when Michael Jordan scored 63 at the Boston Garden? Everybody likes to rant and rave about that. Well, guess what? 135-131 in double overtime, the Chicago Bulls lost. Donovan Mitchell had 57 points. And people want to sit there and talk about, yeah, no big deal. That's really empty of stats because the Utah Jazz lost that game. Well, if you're going to have that theory, you better. You might also want to say the same thing about Jordan scoring 63 in the Boston Garden against the then-defending NBA champions. So Donovan Mitchell is awesome, man. Look, there's been 39 40-point games. Since 2019, I read the stat. Jamal Murray has six of them. Luka Doncic has five of them. Donovan Mitchell, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant have four. Damian Lillard have three. James Harden, Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum are the only other players that have multiple 40-point outings during that span. So we're talking about a couple of years. It's awesome. I think it's incredible. And I think it speaks to the fact that the skill level in the NBA right now is off the charts, and it's great as it's ever been, without question. Without question whatsoever. And people want to maybe take a look at the negatives about, well, it's only become a three-point shooting league, and these guys don't play any defense. I remember they said all that bullshit before, that the, that the NBA, these guys don't play any defense. I remember watching the NBA with the Showtime Lakers, and I used to get upset about the pundits and people when they were downgrading the NBA or talking bad about the NBA. Why? Because they would always say, yeah, when the Los Angeles Lakers were running this fast break and doing showtime and putting up 120 and 125 points a game, what were people saying? Well, big fucking deal in the NBA, especially during the regular season, the teams don't start playing defense until the fourth quarter. Who gives a fuck? I mean, you know, you're putting up all those numbers. Who cares? Teams don't start playing defense until the playoffs. Remember that scene from Airplane where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the captain? And he had that little kid and he was trying to be Roger, and the kid was like, No, you're claiming out Jabbar. He goes, No, 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 my name is Roger. And the kid was like, Yeah, I think you're great. But my dad says you don't try hard enough on defense and this, that, and the other. I mean, that has been the that has been the stereotype for the NBA for a while. So the NBA is always you're always gonna find some uh, some fault, some put down, some denigration of the NBA and what some of these guys are doing. I mean, hell the triple double down Luka Doncic gets a triple double and everybody's dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas. Russell Westbrook gets a triple double and everybody says it's hollow and it really doesn't care. And it only accentuates more of what I'm saying about how the NBA has skewed so much to the offense that triple doubles don't mean anything anymore. Don't care about any of that stuff, man. Donovan Mitchell is doing a thing, and he's proven that he could become a franchise player. And the numbers that he's putting up, I don't care what era. I don't care what the uh, rules are. 40 points in a game is 40 points in a game. I don't care if, flip it. I don't care if all of a sudden for game two, the Los Angeles Clippers, because of COVID issues, have to go ahead and bring out on the floor Wendell Wallace, Dave O'Neill, Mikel Davis, Hayden Winner, and Steve Smith as a starting five. Those are all my great friends from growing up who are now 50-something years old and one that been dead for a while. But I don't care if they bring in me, O'Neal, Cliff Glover, Hayden Witter, Steve Smith, Stu Levy, Flavius Gallibur. I, I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. Donovan Mitchell with that squad would probably go for 100. And I would sit there and be like, damn, that's pretty fucking impressive. <laughs> I don't give a damn. So uh, just don't be knocking. Stop knocking. Stop looking for ways to denigrate or dismiss the greatness of not just Donovan Mitchell, but also these great young players and what they're doing in the league today. It's mentioned before, man, you know, when everybody thought that the league was as great as it's ever, it's ever been in the 1980s when you had the Lakers and you had the Celtics and you had the 76ers and then you had the Pistons and you had the Milwaukee Bucks and you had the Atlanta Hawks and you had the Phoenix Suns and you had the Denver Nuggets and you had all of these teams that were really good. Of course, the... Lakers and the Celtics were the creme de la creme during that era. But if you you take a look, if you take a look at it, man, such guys like Kurt Rambis, those guys couldn't play. Those guys, those type of guys couldn't play in the NBA and today because every single player on that team, on the teams today, every single starter, every single player of significance of importance is a skilled player. And I'm glad that I'm glad that Pat Riley was talking about hustle and determination is a skill, and that's why Kurt Rambis is underrated as a pro, as, as a player when he was with the '80s Lakers. There's no way that Kurt Rambis, with his skill set, just like Mark Averoni with his skill set, like James Landsberger, with his skill set, like Cedric Maxwell with his skill set. There's no way, no how, that those guys would be able to compete in today's NBA. Even if you, even if you. You know, bring in the next generation of guys like that. So Kurt Rambis, who was at the time 6'8", 235, you put him in today's game. Let's just say in today's game, today's culture with the evolution of human beings, that Kurt Rambis would be a guy who would be like 6'10", 250, 255, 260 with more athletic ability. The fact that he couldn't shoot, the fact that he didn't look to shoot, the fact that his main job was to hustle, set screens, take charges and get rebounds. That's not working in today's NBA game. Mark Ivoroni, who was about 6'9", 6'10", 220, 230, power forward, who was next to Caldwell Jones and Moses Malone during the 76ers, run in the 80s, during the early part of the 80s, where the Sixers won, I don't know, 60-something games and might have been arguably the best team of the 80s, that 1982-83 squad with Moses Malone at the height of his career. Man, those guys couldn't be able to play in today's game. There's no room for Bark Ivoroni, as far as any type of role in a situation like that. There's no way that someone like, well, Andrew Tony would be different. But I mean, it's, what I'm saying is, every player on the court today they have to be skilled. They have to be able offensively to do a, to do something with the basketball, make a shot, do something. If it's not, then they're not going to be playing. So you're looking at Donovan Mitchell. Doing what he's doing in today's game, the age and experience of what he's doing, the legacy that he's starting to build, the name that he's starting to build in terms of the basketball annals, the history of 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 the NBA right now, it's impressive. And I think that now, even though he's in Utah, he's not with the Knicks, he's not with the Bulls, he's not with one of the the featured teams of the NBA, he's not with one of the glamour boys, he's not with the Lakers, he's not with the Clippers. Pay attention to what Donovan Mitchell. Excuse me. Pay attention to what Donovan Mitchell is doing. This guy's going to be one of the faces of the league. Can you have one of the faces of your league be playing for the Utah Jazz? Donovan Mitchell is well spoken. He's articulate. He's intelligent. He has charisma. He's got a great game for the youngsters to emulate. Um, from what I know from the outside looking in, there's never been reports of him. Um, impregnating women, driving while drunk, putting foreign substances up his nose or into his veins. No instances of him uh, going to massage parlors and doing some kinky stuff with the uh, massage therapist or or anything like that. He's not getting his massages via the, uh, via the Instagram or anything like that. So from the outside looking in, from what we know of, Donovan Mitchell has a pretty strong and squeaky clean image. And if we're speaking about, you know, LeBron's gonna be 36, and we have these other guys moving out, and who's gonna be the next guy? Who's gonna be that next generational great player? Who is the NBA gonna be hanging his hat on? Of course you always start with Luca. Of course you always then go to Zion. Of course you go to Giannis. But you take a look at some of the up-and-coming superstars under the age of 25. My goodness gracious, man, you've got Devin Booker, you got John Morant, you got Jason Tatum, you got Jalen Brown, you got Jamal Murray, you got Trey Young you got a bunch of young cats who are right now proving that, you know what? Once LeBron starts to finally slow down, once Kevin Durant gets to 36-37, once Chris Paul finally hits 40, once all of these guys finally start to slow down, our game is in is in great hands. And Oh, did I mention the MVP of the league, Nikola Jokic? I think it's about 25, 26 also. And with his game, he's got another 10 to 12 years of excellence left in him also. Luka Doncic at the age of 22. He's got another ten to fifteen years of excellence, top three NBA type of ability left in him. Left in him also. League is in great hands, and right there, right there with all those guys, is Donovan Mitchell. Mm, mm, mm. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Woo! I'm taking a look where Mitchell was drafted in 2017. He was what number 13. Take a look at these draft picks, man. Number one Markel Fultz for the 76ers. <laughs> You'll, you don't think that uh, they would like to have Donovan Mitchell on their team? If you could redo this draft, what are we looking at here? Number one and number two picks would be, what, Donovan Mitchell, then Jason Tatum, then possibly Bam on the bayou? Because I'm taking a look at some of these picks, man. Markel Fultz, Alonzo Ball, those two guys are no longer on the same team that uh, drafted them. Lakers drafted Alonzo. heat He's gone. When they traded for Anthony Davis and Markel Fultz uh, has been an Anthony Bennett type of disappointment as far as number one draft picks are concerned. Other players who were drafted before Mitchell, just take a look at some of these players, man. Just take a look at the name of some of these players. If you're a fan of the Phoenix Suns or the Orlando Magic or the Chicago Bulls or, dare I say, the New York Knicks, take a look at these situations, man. Take a look at the players that... The year that your organization drafted before drafting Donovan Mitchell. Phoenix drafted Josh Jackson, number four, out of Kansas. Orlando Magic dropped, drafted Jonathan Isaac, number six, who missed the entire year this year with an ACL. He could turn out to be a really good defender, but he's not going to come close to reaching the levels and heights of Donovan Mitchell, the way Mitchell is going right now. The Chicago Bulls selected Laurie marketing out of Arizona. <laughs> the New York Knicks. Your New York Knicks. Your New York Knicks. With Phil Jackson selected flipping Frank Nilichina Why? Because he would fit perfectly into the triangle offense. Oh, the New York Knicks right now who are salivating, who are moaning, who are groaning, who are begging, seeing what they can do to get themselves a second superstar now that they have a team that is worthy to be in the uh, playoffs. They're up here talking about Damian Lillard. They're up here talking about Bradley Beal. They're talking about what they can do to go ahead and get themselves a superstar to pair up with Julius Randle. How nice, how sweet, how wonderful it would be if you guys could go ahead and if you guys would have drafted Donovan Mitchell instead of Frank Flipping Nilekina. Number eight. The Dallas Mavericks, oh, am sorry, uh, number eight, number, number, yeah, number eight was the uh, New York Knicks drafted Nilekina. Number nine, the Dallas Mavericks selected Dennis Smith Jr. out of North Carolina State, played one year. Mike Godfrey cheated his ass off to get him into school a subpar year, but because he could jump high and he was uh, Baron Davis, had a Baron Davis type of uh, physique that the uh, Mavs coaching staff, scouting staff, Donnie Nelson, Mark Cuban, Rick Carlisle said, Yeah, Dennis Smith Jr. over Donovan Mitchell. Yeah, that makes sense. The Detroit Pistons drafted a Luke Kennard, the same Luke Kennard that was roasted, toasted, and burnt by Donovan Mitchell in the second half in game one. So I find it quite funny. I find it quite hilarious how all of this went down. But Donovan Mitchell. Getting it done. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Very quickly, because I want to get out of here. The Phoenix Suns taking a 2-0 series lead over the Denver Nuggets. I'm just going to play you this right here. Look, game, game two for Denver. That performance that the Nuggets gave. What can I say? I guess you could say it was Milwaukee game two against Brooklyn Light in terms of their performance, in terms of their effort against Phoenix. Just uh, started this about, what time is it right now? Oh, good Lord have mercy. So it's about 45 minutes after the game is over. They lost 123 to 98, but I did get an opportunity to get some sound from Nuggets head coach Michael Malone and the press conference that he gave, the post-press conference that he gave and talking about the performance of his team in the way that he verbally ass-whooped those guys, eviscerated, destroyed those guys. What Michael Malone did, he gave a Hall of Fame post-conference speech in terms of the verbal ass-whooping. That, 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 that ass-whooping that he gave, that would rival the ass-whooping that Wendell and Marie Wallace gave me when I was about nine years old and was caught stealing candy from a grocery store. And man, when I got home, my mom tore my ass up. And then when my dad got home and found out that what about what I did, then he came in my room and tore my ass up. That was a hall of fame ass whooping that I received. Guess what? Never stole candy again. <laughs> Lesson learned. Uh but uh so yeah, the, 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 the verbal ass whooping that Michael Malone gave his squad, Wendell and Marie Wallace, my parents would be very proud of that beat down, that verbal beat down he gave. It started off with the question of, you know, basically coach, what, what happened at the start of the second half that turned the game into a route for Phoenix? And with that question, it was showtime for Michael Malone. This is how it sounded.
1: Uh, I saw one team that uh, wanted to be here and play with a purpose and urgency, uh, and one team that did not want to be here uh, and play with no urgency. Uh, and that's why we got our ass kicked. Katie Wingey, Altitude Sports. Hey, Coach, when they're sinking as much as they did defensively tonight, what can you do to counter that, especially when you aren't hitting shots from deep? Uh, I don't know. Okay, I'll have to watch the film. We had a lot of guys play really bad tonight. Uh, and then we allowed the, the, the impact of not making a shot to affect uh, the other end. And it was really, I mean, playoff basketball. Can you sit down and guard one on one? Um, It was this this was That's an embarrassing performance uh, all the way around from top to bottom. Jacob, Toby, 9 News, Denver. Coach, um, was there anything with Michael that uh, you talked about with the back or anything? I mean, how's he feeling after and did, did he look right to you out there tonight? Back is fine. Mark Kisla, Denver Post. Hey, Coach. Uh, Will Barton gave you a little joke early. Um, I know it's on minutes restrictions. Uh, what more can you... How much more can you utilize, Will, going forward? Yeah, you know, that was um, probably the, the, the only silver lining to a really rough night all the way around, Kis, uh, was Will Barton who hasn't played in over seven weeks in his first game, goes out there, gives you 10 and three, uh, and gave us a a bolt of energy in that first half. Makes the three, blocks the shot. Um, and he hated me when I took him out because they reached his minute restriction. And I understand that. Uh, I just told our players uh, it's embarrassing that a guy that hasn't been able to play for seven weeks um, was out there leaving it all on the line. And I don't think anybody else did. Uh, this was an embarrassing performance um, from myself all the way through the last player. You know, uh, We're walking out of here with our heads uh, held down, rightfully so. And there's a reason that their crowd is yelling "sons in four and they're calling for a sweep. Because if we play like this back in Denver, uh, this is going to be a really quick series. Ashley Neville, Mile High Sports. Hey, Coach. Chris Paul had 15 assists and zero turnovers tonight. I know that, you know, as you mentioned before that you
0: coached him in the past and what he brings to the game, but um, what, what are you seeing from him and, and
1: why isn't he able to ever be stopped? Well, yeah, he's a he's a great player. Uh, he's one of the greatest to ever do it at that position. Um, I think game one he had 11 assists, only one turnover. Uh, so obviously Chris Paul doesn't see us. He doesn't feel us. Uh, and we're not impacting what he's trying to do in any way, shape, or form, Ashley, um, And I think you could say that pretty much for the Phoenix Suns roster. Uh, they've had their way with us on both ends of the court. I felt we quit tonight, uh, which is something you never want to see. Um, so I, I guess for game three, I'm just going to try to find guys that will at least go out there and leave it all on the line. I may have a hard time coming up with five guys that fill that, but um, these two games, these second halves, uh, have really been disappointing and that's an understatement. Brandon Cristal, KOA Denver. Coach with uh, so many
0: things frustrating you and understandably so, do you focus more on the emotional energy, that type of stuff or more X's and O's over the next, you know, 45
1: hours or whatever? Yeah, well, I think it's probably a combination, you know, uh, You always have to look at the X's and O's side of it, you know, what we're not doing well, uh, why we continue to make some of the same mistakes over and over and over, uh, which is beyond me. Uh, When you spent three days leading up to game one, uh, you spent all day yesterday and this morning going into game two, and guys seem to uh, have a really hard time understanding what they're supposed to be doing uh, and, and doing things that we've done before. So it's not like it's something new. Uh, but then, you, as you mentioned, there's also the emotional side of it uh, and the intangibles. Um, you know, literally, I saw guys say, "I'm not making shots tonight. I'm just gonna walk around and mope, and my body language is gonna be poor." Uh, and I felt that was the five guys on the court. That was the 12 guys on the on the sideline. Uh, we we had no juice, no energy, no passion, no fight, no urgency, no grit. Come up with whatever adjective you want to use. We did not have it. And you can't use, they were going home for game three as you something you can rely upon. We have a great crowd, but if we play like this, they're gonna boo us off the court and rightfully so. So there you have it.
0: Brutal. Brutally honest though. I mean, there was nothing sitting there where he didn't he didn't say anything there where it, I mean, I I can't believe that the players Would have listened to that and been like, well, gee whiz, man, what is he talking about? I don't understand what he means by that. I thought that he's completely wrong. I don't think we quit. I I thought we played well. I think we were ready to play. I, I, I cannot believe that any player on the Denver Nuggets after that performance would say anything like that. So just some of the highlights from what he said. I saw one team that wanted to be here that played with a purpose and urgency and one team that did not want to be here and played with no urgency. And that's why we got our asses kicked. We had a lot of guys play really bad tonight. And then we allowed the impact of not making the shot to affect the other end. And it was really, this was just an embarrassing performance all the way around, top to bottom. He included himself. It's not like he was sitting there talking about, I don't know what I did. I put him in the right position. I mean, I told them what to do and they didn't do it. Don't look at me. Have no idea. Even throughout the Q word, throughout the fact that his team quit during the game with the, quote, I felt we quit tonight, which is something you never want to see. So I guess for game three, I'm just going to try to find guys that will at least go out there and leave it all on the line. It may I may have a hard time coming up with five guys to fill that. But these two games, these second halves have really been disappointing. And that's an understatement. Just think what he said to the team afterwards. I don't, I don't even know in a situation like this that, yelling screaming throwing things cursing out i mean i mean in a situation like that i mean if 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 i have to do all that type of stuff then we absolutely have no chance and maybe i'm not the right guy for the job i mean if if a, if i have to be that mad after that performance where i'm I mean, no one's gonna sit there and be like wow that's surprising i can't believe you got that angry after we got beat like that and the way we played like that so it's a situation where you just talk to a man to man you just talk to him like a man like like a bunch of men and say man fellas if this is the way we're going to go out, then, eh, you know, fuck it. Screw it. Let me know. We'll see some of the other stuff. <laughs> and you can't use, hey, we are going to go home for game three as something you can rely upon. We have a great crowd. But if we play like this, they're going to boo us off the court, rightfully so. Will Barton was the only guy that was saved from the verbal beatdown that uh, Michael Malone gave his gave his team. And I, I don't think it's a situation where I'm going to be using the press or I'm going to be using this as motivation. If you're dealing with men and you're dealing with guys like Nikola Jokic and Paul Billsap and these guys, I mean, I, I think these guys have enough pride in them to where they really don't have to go ahead and, and be motivated or be shook up or be, you know, any, any, any ulterior situation for me it would be like, look, I mean, what, what can I say? What can I do? What tactic can I use? So I'm just going to be brutally honest. I'm going to be myself and um, make the adjustments, see what I can do to be better, get them in a better position, get them better, ready to play. And then I'll go ahead and go. I enjoyed the honesty from Malone. Not once in that five-and-a-half-minute press conference did he ever say, hey, you know, give Phoenix credit. They were better tonight, this, that, and the other. You know, a lot of times these coaches are like, well, you know, Phoenix made shots or, you know, this team made some great plays and this, that, and the other. Wasn't anything like that. It was all about the fact that they stunk up the joint. They weren't competitive. He was talking about guys hanging their heads and having the lack of offense or having the – um having their shots not falling affect the way they play on defense which i guess was a direct shout out to michael porter junior um it was it was just battle all, all the way around and yeah it was surprising the back for any you know after the game when asked about the back michael malone said it's fine you know don't want to hear that bullshit about back issues or anything like that but clearly i mean i don't think michael i don't think michael porter junior has put the ball on the floor more than uh, five or six times. I mean, he's mainly now a, a catch and shoot uh, player. Whether he's you know rolling off screens to uh, catch a ball at the at the uh, foul line or foul line extended top of the key to shoot a jumper, or basically he's just a uh, catch and shoot three point shooter. But his lack of just trying to create anything f- offensively, I mean, you could tell that his back is giving him pro- his giving him problems. His, his lack of dribbling. I mean, he's making. He's making Clay Thompson look like a ball stopper in terms of his lack of dribbling. So, yeah, it's uh, damn, it's, it's, I don't know. If, I don't know if you want to say Denver is in trouble because I don't think that Denver can come out and play like that in front of their home crowd. But man, something's got to change. Or oh, you're right. It was. Uh, it's going to be a quick series. But kudos. The Michael Malone for laying it down, laying it down, laying it down hard. Very few coaches will uh, go ahead and do that. A lot of them will give like short answers. Greg Popovich mainly says maybe one or two statements, and then that's it. You know, uh, doesn't even doesn't even uh, answer questions. He just gives a statement real short, and is like, "Good night, fellas, see ya." <laughs> <laughs> that didn't even need to get into the minutiae. Doesn't even need to get into the details. Doesn't need to even go in depth about how bad uh, his team would play. He would just say, "Well, tonight was a complete beatdown. Give the uh, Phoenix Suns credit. Our team didn't play. We were terrible." And that's about it. Good night. <laughs> so there you go. So Michael Malone, way to go. All right, look, man. It is now one thirty in the morning. I gotta wake up at five thirty to go to work. And uh, I'm going to be groggy, and I'm going to be grouchy. So I had one more segment where I wanted to talk about what the Los Angeles Lakers were going to do going into this offseason. I know the expiration date by the time I do my next podcast might, have, might, might pass this, but the Lakers are the Lakers. There are some things that I want to talk about concerning the Lakers moving forward. There's some things about the New York Knicks. That I want to talk about there's some things about the Dallas Mavericks that I want to talk about moving forward. So what I'll do is I'm going to be putting up another podcast because now I'm in for the summer in terms of not going anywhere, not doing anything in terms of vacation or anything like that. Boy, do I got some stories about traveling and flying? <sighs> if you're fat and you're out of shape, and uh, you know, flying can be a really miserable experience, especially when you fly a certain airline, which I'm not going to be getting into now, but I will in the future. But uh, so, yeah, for the rest of the summer, I'm uh, going to be concentrating on getting this bad boy, this podcast up to the next level and doing what I need to do to start taking it to the next level. So the next podcast will feature, of course, me talking about the NBA playoffs. Unless something crazy happens in the NFL, that's going to be put on the back burner. But I want to be talking about my, I miss talking about my Georgetown Hoyas, man. I really do. I miss talking about them. There's some things that have been going on in the offseason, which I want to get into. That'll be later on in the podcast. There's some stuff about high school basketball that I want to get into. It's the summertime. So, you know, during the dog days, I'm kind of saving some of these topics and some of these discussions for um, that time period. But uh, that's going to be coming up on my podcast Um the next one or two or three down the line. So I want to thank you very much for listening. I want to thank you very much for uh, subscribing, downloading, doing all those things. My name is Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Be good, be strong, be thoughtful, be loving, be caring. Treat everybody the way that you want to be treated. I'm gone. I'm out. Peace. Music.